The first reading is uh, the Acts 2 reading that we read, we read last week. It's going to be the theme reading of this series of sermons. It has to do with, uh, let me remind you, it has to do with uh, the earliest Jesus community and what they thought about each other and what they thought about Jesus and the kind of things that they were busy doing. This is right after Pentecost, right after Peter's Pentecost sermon. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle readings from 1 Corinthians 1. This will be the sermon text for this morning. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. This is right after Jesus' resurrection. It's talking about, we, we begin the story with two of Jesus' disciples. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And Jesus said to them, How foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken! Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, uh, so this is, uh, this is part of a series of sermons uh, about the church and uh, what the church is about and what the church should look like. 
Uh, so last week, so the, the, as a part of that bigger series, this is a part of a smaller series of three ser- sermons about uh, sermons. Sermons that's kind of meta, sermons about sermons. Uh, last week we talked about expository preaching. And I, you remember at the la- end of last week I kind of stepped down and made some sort of outside of the sermon appeal to you. That, that last week was perhaps a little bit out of the box. But what, what I wanted to do, and I'm, I'm going to reiterate this uh, this morning, what I wanted to argue for is that sermons which try to explain a passage from the Bible are the best way to go. And um, it's just simply because the Bible's God's word. And our theology, as much as, for, for those of you who are believers, as much as you love your theology, your, your theology is actually powerless to save you. Like, no, knowing biblical truth does not make you right with God. Satan knows more biblical truth than you and I do. And he's not right with God. A sermon that tries to teach biblical truth is a sermon that's aiming at the wrong thing. A sermon that tries to explain what a particular text from the Bible says is a sermon that is trying to allow God to speak. And a byproduct of that is, hopefully, good theology. But good theology is a byproduct. Look, if I stand up here and I preach from the Book of Concord to you or from the Augsburg Confession, I am doing you no favors. I am giving you man's thoughts. And as much as you and I love our forebears and we love our history and we love our theology, it is man's thoughts. It is only the Bible that has power to save. So I think that, now, this is not to say that an expository sermon, a sermon that like just works through a text and explains it, is the only sermon that you should be allowed. Topical sermons also are good. Sermons where you have a particular theme and you go from, maybe you look at four or five different texts or two or three different texts to kind of unpack that theme. But what sermon, the, the type of sermons that probably shouldn't be preached are the kind of sermons, for those of you who grew up Lutheran, you're, you're going to know what I mean. Like a seminarian sermon. You know, the guy who's like first year seminarian, he gets up there and he doesn't even care. He's going to read a text, but then he just knows because his professors told him, you need to say something about law and you need to say something about gospel. And they're just trying to say that and they get down before they get killed. But the actual point is to actually preach the text. And if law and gospel is a real thing, which, by the way, the sermon next week, the third in this little sermon series about sermons, is going to be about law and gospel. It is important, but it's never the target. It's always the byproduct. And if you, if, 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 if you hear somebody preaching who is just trying to say law and gospel and is pretty much uninterested in the text, maybe they might pull a few key words or something, then they're actually aiming at the wrong thing. That was last week. This is a sermon about the cross of Jesus Christ being the center of sermons. Now, I, if, for those of you who remember, and um, I'm going to guess that's maybe just 1% of you, I actually preached on this text back in February, this same text. Uh, I'm not going to preach the exact same sermon, although I'll reference it. Um, I'm going to preach the text, but with a little bit different angle. Last time I wasn't talking about sermons. I was just talking about this basic core of this text, which I'll bring up again is, what is the gospel doing? What is the cross doing? It's undermining our expectations of importance. It's undermining our expectations of what power and wisdom actually is. But today I want to talk about that in relationship to sermons. The Christian, a Christian sermon should always preach uh, the cross, always preach the cross. There's this, I can't remember his name, but when I was a kid growing up, actually, I remember this from high school. If you got up early enough in the morning and you were listening to KMOX, there would be this guy who would come on and he would do these five-minute devotionals. And he would talk about how, he would say things like, 
uh, you know, uh, love your neighbor. He would talk for five minutes about loving your neighbor and how it's important to love your neighbor and to not be so, not be selfish with your life, but to give up your life to serve those around you. He would say things like that, you know, or um, honesty in the workplace is an essential thing. Uh, you know, lying is disappointing to God and it also damages your relationships and it's also bad for business. And so you should tell the truth. And if you listen to this guy talk, you would think, man, this guy is just saying tons of good things. I mean, you hardly ever listen to this. I don't remember his name, actually. You hardly ever listened to this guy and thought, that's not true. It was all true stuff. But it turns out, and again, I don't remember the guy's name, so that's unfortunate, but I'm sure you could Google it. It turns out the guy's Mormon, right? I mean, he never, ever once mentioned the cross of Jesus Christ. So all the true stuff that he said, as good as it was, it wasn't Christian because it doesn't actually get to the heart of my problem. My problem isn't that I need to be more honest or more selfless. Again, I do need to be more selfless, and I do need to quit lying. But that's not the target that I'm aiming for. That's a byproduct of getting a hold of the gospel, of meeting Jesus. So what this text is about is the cross of Jesus Christ. Anyway, can I read um, a chunk of it again to you? Let's start in verse uh, 21, and we'll read down through verse 23. This is the epistle reading from 1 Corinthians. For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to, uh, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, what I want to do is I want to take that last half of verse 21. God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And I want to try to explain what that phrase right there means. So there's three parts that can kind of break this apart here, and we'll talk about it one by one. God was pleased, that's the first part. The second part, through the foolishness of what was preached. And then the third part, to save those who believe. All right. So let's first talk, talk about the part that God was pleased. So because God, because this is a part of God's plan, right? This is what verse 21 says. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom did not know him. Through wisdom, you cannot access God. There's not intellectual power that you have or that anybody has that's strong enough to figure out God. Because of this, God was pleased to save us by foolishness. God was pleased to do this. Like, how how does God interact with us in our brokenness and fallenness? I mean, sometimes Scripture talks about, you know, God having pity and mercy on us. It's a big theme in Scripture, right? God... God feels sorry for us. God loves us. God reaches out to us because he longs for a relationship with us. There's also bits in scripture about God taunting people who don't believe. Is that what's what's going on here? Because the world is trying to figure out deep, important things through its own wisdom. God is pleased. God is pleased to insert ultimate reality into the world through something ridiculously stupid. And it's kind of a taunt, like Psalm 2. You know, the people have these ideas about what they're going to do with God, and, and God just kind of laughs at them, laughs at them in derision, and says, well, you can't do anything. I'm in charge here. Um, so I, I have a, a friend, Rusty, who I run with, and I, uh, we jog, and every once in a while, b- b- both Rusty and I are you know, firmly ensconced in middle age, and so jogging is a duty. It's not a pleasure, and it's not anything that any of us are like, impressive at. You wouldn't look at us and be like, whoa, those guys are athletes. Sometimes we'll run with uh, his uh, son, who's a freshman in high school now, Eli. 
Eli weighs like 110 pounds, and there's not a single inch of fat on him. And sometimes Eli uh, will taunt us by running backwards while we run faster than us. There's a little bit of something to that. Maybe that, that's what's going on here a little bit. You, you know, you think that you're good, but I can beat you with one hand tied behind my back. You think that you're smart, but I can beat you being dumb, God says. You think that you're fast, but I can run backwards and run faster than you. I don't know. That's possible. It's possible. There's times in scripture where God's, he's going to make fun of us a little bit because we're so, you know, this is actually, when I was away from the faith, this is one of the things that Angela said to me. She didn't say it to me in the moment, but after this was all over, she said to me, you know, when we, when we would talk, when you, when, when I had abandoned Christianity and we would talk, Angela would say, you know what? You would talk and it was just, I would roll my eyes because you just thought you were so smart. You, you would say things like, oh yeah, this is the perfect argument against you. And it was just so foolish what you were saying. She didn't say that to me in the moment. It's not the kind of thing you say to somebody who's struggling with their faith. But when it was all over, she was like, that was just so dumb. And you would say it like you were just the genius of the world. And we feel like we're, we, we, we feel like, we feel like we're smart. All of us feel like we're smart at different, all of us feel like we're dumb at times too. But all of us feel it. We're proud of the moments when we are smart. But, it makes God happy to undermine that with his own foolishness. It makes God happy. This, this, is, the other, this is the second thing that I think it, 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 it means too. And maybe this, is, maybe this is more than the first part about the taunting. Maybe also along with that is just the pleasure of opening somebody's eyes to something simple that they couldn't see. Do, do you know, um, a couple quick examples. I, 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 was, uh, I was actually in seminary. I had a friend in seminary who showed me how to do those um, magic eye 3D things. Like I had spent like 10 years before trying to do it and not being, you know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like blurry and everything, but there's a picture in there that, you know, I'd spent like 10 years prior to that looking at those, being frustrated by not being able to see them, being embarrassed because I would lie and say, oh yeah, I can see that, that was cool because all my friends were saying that. I don't know if I ever did that, but it's the kind of thing I would do. And I had a friend in seminary who showed me, and it was like an aha moment. That's so easy. And I can do it now just like a couple seconds and it's there. My dryer wasn't working uh, a few years ago. I, but by the way, I'm so bad with mechanical stuff. Like no knowledge at all. And so I opened up the front of my dryer because I thought, I do not want to pay for a new dryer. I do not want to pay to get this fixed. And it's just, a, you, you know, there's like fans in there and belts and, and uh, motors and stuff moving. I have no clue what I'm looking at. So I, via the magic of YouTube, I watched this video of this guy putting the symptoms of my, um, um, my, my dryer's problems into my uh, Google machine. And this YouTube comes up, video comes up, and it's um, uh, this guy just simply replacing one thing. I thought, that's so easy. I opened it up, and it's like this mass of problems, you know. And I have no clue what I'm doing. But it's just a matter of like taking out one part and putting, putting in another part. There's something that's really, really pleasurable, not just about fixing your dryer, not just about like not having to pay to get your dryer fixed, not just about solving a magic eye 3D puzzle. There's something pleasurable about figuring out something that was so simple that you thought was so complex. And there's something about this going on here too, where God, it, it gives God pleasure to open our eyes to just the simple, cut and dried, no frills beauty of his plan to rescue the world through the cross. You don't have to be a genius to do this. 
You don't have to be culturally relevant. You don't have to be super strong. It's so simple, and it gives God pleasure to open up our eyes to that. That's the first thing. But the second thing is, is this kind of the meat of this phrase here is, through the foolishness of what was preached. So what is the foolishness of what was preached? Well, what was preached, he goes on to say down in verse um, uh, 23, but we preach Christ crucified. That's what, that, that's the foolish thing that he preaches. That's the weak thing that he preaches is that Christ is crucified. What makes this foolish? What makes the cross foolish? And now I'm going to borrow a little bit from that sermon in February. The cross is really, really dumb. Look, people, philosophers from uh, time immemorial have been trying to figure out the impossible questions. Like, you know, what's the meaning of life? Or what's the nature of reality? Is reality something that we can see? Is what is right here the main thing? It's Aristotle's view. Or is there some spiritual hidden world behind the main thing? That's Plato's view. That's the difference between materialism and idealism. What's the difference between the, you know, which one of these is right? Where is ultimate reality? And then Paul, to address that question, says, ultimate reality is not the things seen. It's not the things unseen. Ultimate reality is this minor political revolutionary who was executed for crimes against the state. What? That's a really, really dumb answer. Ultimate reality is a dead guy. That's foolishness. There's no wisdom there. There's no philosophical. What's the meaning of life? What is life all about? Life is about a dead guy 2,000 years ago. That's what life's all about. All of you, like not, not all of you, most of you programmed with your Christian background to just assume that Jesus means everything. You don't hear the stupidity of that, that people who aren't believers hear. You don't hear the stupidity of that, that Paul, Paul's here is in Corinth here. It's really, really dumb that you guys are here this morning talking about somebody who died 2,000 years ago. But that foolishness is God's wisdom. Uh, more on why in just a second. It's also weakness. This is a part of the problem of 1 Corinthians 1, is that the gospel is weak. You know, the, 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 the Greeks want wisdom, they want philosophy, but the Jews demand power. What the Jews demand is somebody who's going to liberate them from Rome. So what we're longing for is a Messiah who can raise an army and can beat Caesar. And Paul says, no, actually what the Messiah is, dead construction worker. That's what the Messiah is. That's weakness. Messiahs don't get killed. Messiahs do the killing. But here Paul says, the answer to your problem is this dead guy. That's the answer to your problem. That's foolish and it's weak. Paul insists, though, that it's wise and it's strong in God's economy. So why is this? Why do we preach the foolishness and weakness of cross instead of wisdom and strength? But this is, this is, let me talk just a second here about what this has to do with sermons. It's really, really tempting to try and, as you preach a sermon, to try and make your guys' lives better. To try and say, let me say some things that are going to make you smarter. Let, the, the main goal of my sermon is going to be like information content. Let me try and say something new that you haven't heard before. And you're like, whoa, I've never thought about that before. Now I'm more intelligent about the Bible than I was before. And a lot of you, when you show up at church, this is how you judge sermons. I know I do. Is the guy, inter- is he engaging? Like, is, he, is he intellectually stimulating? Or is this just the boring, same old, same old? Now, I'm not advocating boring, same old, same old. But what I am saying is that intellectually stimulating is not the goal of any good Christian sermon. Foolishness is the goal of any good Christian sermon. Showing you the cross of Jesus Christ. Why do we preach weakness? 
I mean, the goal, one of my goals, if I'm not watching myself, is to try and make you guys feel like you've got some sort of path to a better life. Like I can sort of say some things to help you have better marriages or better relationships with your parents or you know, stuff like that. But that's not the goal of a Christian sermon. The goal of a Christian sermon is weakness. To show you, to open your eyes to your bad relationship with your parents or your spouse. The greedy way, the irresponsible way, the selfish way that you use your money. That's the goal of any good Christian sermon. Why is this? And the answer is the last phrase here. The point of the sermon is to save those who believe. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. The point of a Christian sermon is salvation. It is not personal betterment. It is not intellectual stimulation. It is not new knowledge. It is not, you know, God forbid, lowest level. It's not entertainment. This is why, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I I don't title my sermons. It's just a stupid thing to do, is is to not title your sermons. It doesn't mean anything. It's not like sermon titles are bad. And and it wouldn't be horrible if I started titling. But I don't want them to turn into like some sort of performance art. Or like, what's the title of your recitation today? Or what is the, what is the essay for the morning about? I don't want it to be engaging. I want it to be this, I pray to God that it would be this charismatic moment where we, outside of like our intelligence or our stupidity, outside of our strength or our, our weakness, outside of our morality or our immorality, outside of our goodness or our badness, meet with Jesus just for a moment. We come into contact with the crucified Christ. That's what salvation is. That's what salvation is about. And that's what salvation, that's what a sermon should be about, is this, this meeting with Jesus. This abandoning everything else for 13 seconds, or however long these sermons are, in meeting with the guy who created us. This is God's attempt not to help you prop up your lives with the things that you prop your life up with. You know, financial security or psychological comfort. But to tear those things down to pull them apart, and to expose you to the brokenness that is the dead Messiah. And to make you realize, now now we're at the meet, to to make you realize that your salvation, your rescuing from everything that's wrong about you, is only going to happen not when you become a better person, but when you meet with Jesus. Can I give you this quote? This is a quote from uh, the novelist Emily Waringa. And she says this, In order for us to raise kids in congregations... So she's talking about, you know, child rearing, which doesn't apply to everybody in here. But congregations does. We're all trying to build up St. James. In order for us to, to raise kids in congregations who need Jesus, we need to let them do just that. Need Jesus. But if we're not letting them feel the brokenness of the world, if we're not letting them press their heart to God's through the pain of humanity, they'll simply feel guilty over their sin and inadequacies Versus realizing they need a savior. If I come in here and I try to teach you how to be a better person, all I'm doing is trying to, uh, to, trying to drug you for a few minutes against the fact that you're completely broken and I'm completely helpless to do anything about it. That's what we do when we go to church and we want, like, I, I want to feel better about myself. No, 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 you don't. The deepest part of you doesn't want to feel better about yourself. If I could say things that could make you feel better about yourself, it would all, away, it would all go away as soon as you pulled away in the parking lot and you realized, I'm still the, the still, I'm still the same screwed up loser that I was when I showed up at church this morning. It does us no good to try to drug each other. Instead, we need to come face to face with our fallenness and our brokenness, with our nastiness, with our shame, 
with our stupidity, with our weakness, to embrace it, to look at it and to feel it. This is one of my goals. So, so, so my, my kids will come to me after, usually after about a video game playing and will say, I'm bored. I don't have anything to do. And I want to say, I'm bored too. Feel the boredom. Don't, don't try to run away with it. Don't try to entertain yourself into complacency. Feel the weight of the fact that without video games, I am lonely. Without food, I am empty. Without sex, I am meaningless. Without money or my jobs, I have no purpose. Pause for a second here in church and feel the weight of that by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Death. That's the meaning of this. The wisdom of God is the wisdom of God is that no matter how hard you try to make yourself smart, you'll never get there. No matter how hard you try to entertain yourself, you'll never get there. That's the wisdom of the cross. Embrace that. Amen.